All right. So we uh, are in the Mark chapter, uh, we'll be in chapter uh, 14, continuing there. Um, so you that, uh, all you that made resolutions for the new year, how are your resolutions going? Are they going pretty good? Or you already broke them? Jolene and I had, uh, are doing very good with ours. We, we decided we were going to read more, right? And we're, we're doing very good with it. Every, every day we turn on the TV and we turn the subtitles on. <laughs> Does very good. We're able to read a lot. All right. Well, before we begin in Mark today, I want to mention something. Something's been on mine. On January 17th, 1994, there was an earthquake that hit the Northridge section of Los Angeles about 4.30 in the morning. And it's said that nine the uh, operators at the emergency centers uh, started receiving a number of calls on 911 because people were complaining about strange lights in the sky. You see, all the power had gone out, so they no longer had the light pollution around the city, and they could actually see the Milky Way, the stars that were in the sky, the numerous billions of stars in the sky that a lot of people have never seen. I don't know about you, but you can't really see them right here, but I have seen that way up in the mountains in, I don't know, North Georgia, North Carolina on a dark, clear night when there's no light around. You can see the sky is full of stars. Have you ever seen that? Some of you have, I know. Some of you raised it out in the country, and you probably saw it a lot. But it is awesome to see something like that, and we don't get to do that around here very easily. One of the things I wanted to mention was, you know, we get to... In our lives today, we, we think everything's kind of ordinary, right? We get routines uh, taken care of. We, we become mundane in our lives. And we don't think about this great creation that God had, God did. And the world, of course, says, there's no God. I don't see any evidence of a God. I don't have any reason to believe in a God. But you know what? Scripture talks about this, the greatness of God. In fact, Scripture says, just look in the sky. Look up at the stars. In our galaxy alone, there are 100 billion stars just in our galaxy, not to mention all the other millions and billions of stars out there. And the average distance between each of those stars is 30 trillion miles. 30 trillion. And you know what? If they were any closer, it would actually affect the orbit of our planets here in our solar system. It would actually affect the way our lives would be. Pretty amazing to think about, right? The space shuttle could travel in orbit about 17,000 miles an hour. Five miles per second. Could get across the city of Atlanta in what, five seconds or so? Amazing to think about. Yet it would take that space shuttle 201,000 years or more to get to the closest star from here. Think about that. You can't think about that because you cannot fathom that in your mind, right? It's just as far as you know, it's infinite. When you look up at the stars at night, you just, it looks like it goes on forever. And you can't see an end. And in our finite minds, it makes it hard to understand that. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40 if you wish. I want to read something about this. Isaiah chapter 40, <clears throat> beginning in verse 25. He says, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, 
who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. From our perspective, the heavens are infinite, right? And so is God. He knows all the stars. He knows it by name, according to Isaiah. He can count every grain of sand on the beaches of the earth. And that's how many stars there are. Blows your mind, doesn't it? That's how great our God is. Oh, there's no evidence of God. Oh, I've never seen a God. He hasn't revealed himself to me. Guess what? It takes a lot more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. Amen? All right, let's turn over to Mark chapter 14 and continue in our study today. Next week, Brother Kyle Butt's going to be here speaking during our class time, so we won't have our regular class, but I'm looking forward to that. If you've never heard Kyle Butt speak, you're in for a treat. Um, he's a wonderful speaker, and I'm guessing in class time, he's probably going to be doing some Christian evidences, which will blow your mind, too, and make you think, and that's a great thing. We will have one more lesson in the book of Mark. <clears throat> we'll continue that in the first Sunday of February, which will be the next quarter. And then we're going to begin a study on... Uh, for the, for the uh, quarter of February, March, and April, I don't know if you call that the, I guess that's the winter quarter, or is that the spring quarter? Uh, spring quarter. Um, on why I believe. And each Sunday we're going to take a different subject and look at it, like, for instance, why I believe in God. Or why I believe in the church. Why I believe in the kingdom. Each week we'll look at something different for that quarter. And I think this will be a great study. And hopefully it will help you to be equipped in defense of your faith, Right? to understand where you can go in Scripture to make a defense for your faith, as we are commanded to do, okay? All right, hopefully that'll be a great study, and I look forward to it, and I hope you'll be here for that. Well, let's continue in Mark today. We're actually in chapter uh, 15. I said 14, but I meant 15. And we're getting to the crux of the matter. Crux means a, crux, a word that was from medieval Latin, meaning cross. I know you've heard that phrase before, right? The crux of the matter. The nitty-gritty, getting down to the nitty-gritty. Where the rubber meets the road, right? We're getting down to the bottom line. The heart of the matter. Where all history revolves. The death of our Lord on the cross. Interesting how that phrase uses that very term, right? To refer to what's really important. Matthew chapter 15 beginning in verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine, mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments 
casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. All right. Thus far in Mark's account, we've seen the agonizing prayer that he prayed in the garden, right? We've seen the betrayal of Judas and the arrest in the garden, the beating and mocking at Caiaphas' house, the denial by Peter, the scourging, beating, and mocking by the Roman soldiers. By this time, Jesus would have been physically exhausted. I mean, he's been awake for more than 24 hours, suffering from the beatings and scourging that have already been inflicted. But the worst is yet to come. Condemned to death by crucifixion, the Roman soldiers led him to the place where we, he would be crucified. He's so exhausted that he starts bearing his cross. It's probably the cross piece that would go up on top of the post. And he's bearing it, but can't do it. He's so exhausted, he just can't do it. So Simon of Cyrene is compelled to take it. This probably weighs between 30 and 40 pounds. You know, it's a very big beam, and it proved too much for him. Mark mentions that uh, he is the father, Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus, and this may be the same Rufus that Paul mentions in Romans 16. He's uh, one of the brethren in Rome, perhaps, at that time. He's brought to Golgotha, a place near the city. It's outside the city. It's a mod- that word is a modified transliteration of the Aramaic word for the, a skull. And actually, uh, Calvary comes from the Latin word for skull. So you might have heard that. He's offered wine and myrrh. But he refuses. Wine and myrrh making up kind of a narcotic drink. Perhaps was offered to those who are crucified to kind of dull the pain a little bit, right? But Jesus refused. Perhaps choosing to experience the full pain of the ordeal. We don't know that for sure. But maybe that's why. Then they crucified him. Amazingly, in the account here it's rather restrained mark really doesn't say a lot about it other than that he was crucified especially when it was the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible now you've heard in history barbaric things right the guillotine in france right people being burned at the stake sounds awful But these things don't compare to being hung on a cross. I'm going to read a a thing from an outline here. And this is is a little gruesome. But I want us to understand what the Lord went through. You know, as I said, we tend to get routine in our lives. We don't think about the gravity of things usually. And we tend to gloss over 
But I want you to hear this. This is described by a doctor. Simon's order to place the cross beam on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression in the front of his wrist. He drives the heavy, square, wrought iron nail through his wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly moves to the other side and repeats the etching, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The cross beam is then lifted in place at the top of the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both extended toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails and the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there's searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. You ever had a cramp? You know what that's like. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward anymore. Air can be drawn in the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. You ever been out of breath? Scared you couldn't breathe? The panic that you feel when that happens? Hours Hours of this limitless pain. Cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissues torn from the lacerated, his lacerated back. Remember, he was scourged as he moves up and down against this rough timber. Can you imagine? Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in, gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now an extremist, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. This is from the crucifixion of Jesus. The passion of Christ from a medical point of view. See Truman Davis. We have no idea. We have no understanding what the Lord went through. Yeah, he died. But that was a relief if you think about it. We also read that the garments were divided among the soldiers as was foretold by David in Psalm 22. The time, it marks the hour, is the third hour, about 9 a.m. in the morning. 
the inscription. Pilate had them charge an accusation made against Jesus. Even though he said he could not find no fault in this man, he said he's Jesus, king of the Jews. Matthew says this Jesus, king of the Jews. Luke, this is the king of the Jews. John says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's written in three different languages. Probably each writer wrote that out as was best to fit his purpose. It was probably abbreviated. And not only that, he's mocked and blasphemed while he's going through agony. Has two robbers crucified with him, probably cohorts of Barabbas, insurrectionists. And even the two thieves are mocking him, although one later recants, as we know about. And this begins the six, I said six hours until his death. He hung on a cross for six hours. You know, that's about how long some of you sleep. I want that to sink in a little bit. What can we learn from this? Jesus took on our sin on that cross. His mangled body just hanging there because of our sin. Terribleness. The great horribleness of sin. I want you to understand that and know about it. We also see the greatness of our God's love. The greatness that he would send his only begotten son to die for us. Hang on that cross. Go through that agony. And I want you, if nothing else, to be inspired today by Jesus' sacrifice. Nothing greater in this world has ever happened than when Jesus died on the cross for us. Nothing for us. That's it. It is the crux of the matter. I hope today when you leave, you'll think about that. When you go outside and it's cold, it's nice and cold, it's not comfortable. But think how that doesn't even compare to what our Lord did for us. Let's read on. There in chapter 15, beginning in verse 33, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There are also women looking on from afar, among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Following a night and a morning of torture and ridicule, Jesus was crucified. For six hours, as we said, he hung on that cross. The mockery continued. Finally, he dies. And we have darkness covering the area. Significance? Well, I can only speculate. We don't really know why this happened. Perhaps it was a sign of mourning. The Lord mourning over the death of his son. Perhaps a sign of judgment. Perhaps it's a veil covering the shame of crucifixion. Just thoughts. We have the cry of agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A proverbial expression of distress. In fact, this was prophesied in Psalms 22. If you want, turn over there with me. This is a great messianic psalm. I want to read what was said here. Prophecy of the crucifixion. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? From, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And then a night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and you were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on the mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble's near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they, class, they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor bored the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. And they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. It's a psalm, prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion, of the statement that he's saying is, why, why God have you forsaken me? Yet knowing in the end, he has not. Knowing in the end, he's gone through terrible agony. But knowing in the end, God is righteous and he is with him. This interpretation really it doesn't deny the real anguish that he's feeling. Obviously, he felt anguish. He's feeling God has forsaken him to allow him to go through this. Right? He's still a man. But Psalms 22 puts it well. In the end, he's there. Mercury continues, yet one offers a gesture of sympathy, one of the soldiers. He sees what he's going through and he says, yet this man has to be the son of God for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because of the miraculous events that occurred or because he simply saw the love. He understands this is the son of God. He's crucified, and with a loud voice, he breathes his last. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. We read that in Luke. He yields up his spirit. We read that in Matthew 27, suggesting he was ready to go. He voluntarily said, I'm, I'm done. I have done the work. It's time for me to go. I give up my spirit. Some suggest he died from a ruptured heart. Others say perhaps dehydration, loss of blood, whatever it was. And then Mark mentions something else here. The veil of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. This is the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. Approximately 30 feet tall. And it was thick. You couldn't just go up there and rip it open no matter how strong you were. Now it's been opened. God has given us access through the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament has ended. Now the new covenant has begun. The law of love. The law of love for the Lord, the love for God and the Son and the love for each other. What a glorious symbol, a glorious sign. We now can go into the throne room of God because we've been made pure by the cleansing of the blood. Don't need the high priest anymore. Don't need the incense and the bulls, the blood of goats, bulls and goats to be spread on the mercy seat. We just get on our knees humbly and talk to him. What a privilege that is. The centurion obviously observes the women. When Jesus died, he said, these are truly the Son of God. And we have many women who are looking from afar, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of Clopas, the mother of James, Celeste, and Joseph. Salome, who we studied earlier, was probably the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
many other women, including Jesus' mother, Mary. Women who had followed Jesus, who had ministered to him in Galilee, who had come with him to Jerusalem. And then we have the burial. When evening had come, likely late afternoon, the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, so this is still Friday. <clears throat> Joseph of Marathea, member of the council, rich man, secretly waiting for the kingdom. He believes, but he's afraid, afraid of the Jews. Mark doesn't mention it, but John 19, we read also, Nicodemus came. He comes with myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of it to minister to the body. Pilate confirms, gets some confirmation from the centurion that he is dead. He's already dead, because obviously it took a lot longer for most. And he releases his body to Joseph of Arimathea. Barely he's wrapped in fine linen. He's laid in this new tomb, hewn out of the rock. The stone is rolled against the door. Mary Magdalene and Mary of Joseph, mother of Joseph, observes where he was. They know where the tomb is. And they go back and prepare spices and fragrant oils that they're going to use the next day. A couple of verses I want to point out from this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read something here. Referring to his death and burial. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Those two verses kind of sum it up for us. The Hebrew writer saying, this is your Lord who suffered greatly. Now, despise all sin. Get away from sin. Turn away from it. And keep your eyes forward to the cross. That's what really matters, the crux of the matter. Well, <clears throat> that's not the end. Good news, right? If that was the end, what would be the point, right? He's just another guy that died. Oh, but now the rest of the story. Mark chapter 16. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, <clears throat> they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? 
But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, that you will see him. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fed from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and, hold the, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. I want you to keep that in mind. They did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he was risen. After Jesus is buried, his body lays in the tomb until early Sunday morning. On Saturday evening, three women brought spices to anoint him. They wait till the next morning, sunrise. They go to the tomb wondering how they're going to get the stone removed so they can get in and anoint him. Only to find the stone has been rolled away. They go inside and they see a man dressed in a white robe. says, he's not here. Don't be alarmed. Go and tell the others that he's going into Galilee and he will see them there. We have Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned here in Mark. She's also mentioned in John 20. We have the other women. Matthew's gospel mentions a few. When Jesus... reiterated what had been said before. He appears to two men in the country, two disciples walking in the country. Luke also mentions he appears to Peter. The, upon the report of the testimony of the two disciples, they don't believe. It's mentioned by Paul in the epistles in Corinthians. It's mentioned that we, he is seen by several of the apostles without Thomas, perhaps here in verse 14, that's that occasion. Described in detail in Luke and John. And then he appears to other apostles, other disciples, and later to John. To seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, including Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John. While they fished and ate together. Paul also mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to 500. Possibly in Galilee. That's directed by the angel here in the tomb. That's possibly when the Great Commission was given as well. He appears also to James, the brother of Jesus. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15. James, who, remember, did not believe. But now, oh, that's going to change. <clears throat> what can we glean from this? Did the resurrection actually happen? Oh, the world says no. There's been many scoffers, right? Ah, some Roman soldiers came in there and moved that stone. You know, he didn't really rise. They just moved his body somewhere else. There's all kinds of theories and conspiracy that have been said over the years. Yet, all of a sudden, 
these disciples changed. They didn't believe at first. They hear, but they don't believe until what? Thomas said, until I see holes in his hands. The hole in his side. They got to have empirical evidence, not just theory. They got to have strong physical evidence to see with their own eyes to know that this is true. And they do. They refuse to sec accept any secondhand words. For 40 days, as you read in Acts 1, they were given infallible proof that he was raised. They saw, they heard, they touched him, they ate with him. No way they could have been fooled. No way. Demonstrated by their transformation. Before this, remember, they were afraid. They fled at his arrest. Remember that? They hightailed it out of the garden. Peter followed at a distance with the crowd so he wouldn't be conspicuous. He even denied him three times. Women, the women mourned at his crucifixion. Oh, they were so sorrowful and sad. But this had happened. They loved him. But after his death, something happened. They were even, remember, behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jews. But after the resurrection, they fearlessly praised God and proclaimed Jesus. Luke 24, 52 and 53. Praying praising God in the temple, proclaiming Christ. Despite the persecution they're going to have, this transformation is strong evidence for the resurrection. In fact, I'm going to read a little something here to you. This is from an Orthodox Jewish scholar, Pincus Lapidi, 1979. He says that the disciples were totally disappointed and on the verge of desperate flight because of the very real reason of the crucifixion, it took another very real reason in order to transform them from a band of disheartened and dejected Jews into the most self-confident missionary society in world history. The only thing that could have done that was the resurrection. They had to know that he was alive, that he was among them, that he was there for them. Not only that, they lived lives that reflected him highly moral they didn't lie about things they lived their lives in an unimpeachable way unimpeachable way if you were telling lies would that even matter to you not only that they paid a price all but one of the 12 died a martyr's death john being the one that survived to a long time they endured much suffering because of their testimony. Even James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off the temple and clubbed to death for his testimony. Don't read that in scripture, but we read that in the early church writings. If these guys didn't, we're going around and tell a bunch of junk, why would they die like that? Why were they willing to go through what they went? Remember Paul talked about what he went through. Beaten with rods, 
scourged, thrown in prison, shipwrecked. These guys believed it with all of their heart, and they reflected it in how they went about their lives in delivering the gospel to the world. I thank God for that because now you and I can know what he did for us. And that is the rest of the story, the crux of the matter. Time is up. Thanks for being here.